I'll tell you a funny story. You know, when you do evangelism, you have all kind of things happen. One night I was in Boston, and I was preaching. And there was three teenagers, and they kept looking in this room. It was a hotel like this. They kept mocking me, you know, and I'd raise my hand, and they'd raise their hand, and I'd raise my hand, and they were mocking me. I was at the Woburn Holiday Inn. And um, pretty soon, one of those kids threw an alarm switch, and there was a 14-alarm fire, and 14 fire trucks came, and the alarm was going so loud I couldn't preach, and people ran out of the bars because they thought there was a fire, ran out into the parking lot. People opened their sleeping rooms and ran out. And I knew that if I lost my audience, it was like only the fourth night or fifth night of my meetings, and I knew if those people went out, I'd never get them back. So what I did is I just stood there like this, smiling at 500 people for about 20 minutes. It was tough. And I went down in the front row, and I said to the person there, our deacon, I said, find out if this is a real fire. If it is, I'll dismiss them. If it's not, we've got to keep those people here. So he said, Pastor, it's not a fire. So I you know, stood like this, like this, like this for about 20 minutes. One of my seminary students climbed up. He went in the sleeping room, got a pillow. When he climbed up, and he stuck the pillow in the alarm. It kind of gave us a little bit of clarity. But that, the fire people came, and that whole melee, that whole confusion didn't stop until about quarter till nine. Well, the meeting was supposed, you know, I was 20 minutes into the meeting. Uh, we had our music, and we had everything else, and I had just started to preach. I had only preached for about 10 minutes. But now I'm at quarter till 10 to 9, so what do I do? If I conduct the meeting with the music and I preach for an hour, it's 10 of 10, and I know I'm not going to get those people back. One of my Bible workers was sitting in the front row, and she had sung a song that I had heard her sing in the car when some of us were on the way to a Bible study. It was called, Who Am I That the King Should Come and Die For? You remember that old song? Who am I that the king... So I said to her, I said, Barbara, get up and sing Who Am I That the King Should Come and Die For? She looked at me and said, Pastor, there's no pianist. I said, I don't care. I need you to have to sing that song right now. She said, Pastor, but I forgot the words. I said, when you start to sing, you're going to remember them. Barbara, don't argue with me. Sing that song. That girl got up. You know, she didn't have a trained professional voice, but she got up and began to sing just quietly. Who am I that the king should come and die for? And hearts were touched that night. By the time she got done, it was about five of nine. I talked about the great controversy between good and evil, between Christ and Satan. And on the fifth night of the meeting, made an appeal for people to come to Jesus. Sixty or seventy people came that night. The head of the Department of Nurses at the New England Sanitarium and Hospital, when that was still opening and functioning at the time, made a decision that night and was baptized. A young couple from Northeastern University, he was a pharmacist at the hospital, and she was just finishing. She, they were baptized. You know, sometimes God uses unusual things, and when you give your life to God, it's like when Luther Warren was invited to Jamaica in the early 1900s. You know the story. He was invited to hold a field school of evangelism for young seminary and pastors. His hosts told those pastors, look, you're going to notice very clearly how Luther Warren stays on the same topic. You're going to notice that every single topic is connected to the next topic, one text connected to the next. Luther Warren got up to preach on opening night. He had a couple thousand people at his meetings. And as he began to preach, he covered the truthfulness of the Bible in five minutes. He then went into Daniel 2 in five minutes. Then he went to Matthew 24. He began to talk about the truth. He began to talk about the law of God, the second coming of Christ. The conference president said later that he was so frustrated with Luther Warren because he was destroying everything that he had taught to these seminary students that the, uh, past, the conference president said he was behind the stage walking, wringing his hands, wringing his hands. And finally, at the end of that sermon, Luther Warren made an appeal. Hundreds of people came forward, and the conference president said, what is he doing? He's destroying the meeting. He's covered so many topics. This is the first night. They didn't understand. Luther Warren said he went back to his room. He didn't understand what he did. The next day, the great Jamaica, Kingston, Jamaica earthquake took place. They never had one more meeting. Thousands of people, of course, were killed in that earthquake. And Luther Warren said he walked the streets of that city and saw in the rubble some of the people that had came to his meeting the night before. You know the story of, of Dwight Moody in Chicago. The night before the Chicago fire, Dwight Moody had preached 
Ira Sankey had sung, Moody made no appeal, and he said he never forgave himself. He said it was one of the worst decisions of his life because he didn't make an appeal that night. In every audience, there are those waiting to accept Jesus. And so preaching is the opportunity that gives them that opportunity to make a decision for Christ and his kingdom. That's why I love evangelism so much, because we present opportunities for people to be saved eternally in God's kingdom. Let's uh, look at revival in a finished work and its relationship to it, the challenges we face, and let's pray. Father, we pause as we go into this important presentation to ask you to inspire our hearts and encourage our minds. We want more than information. All week we've been doing teaching, teaching, teaching. We've looked at different ways and methods. But Lord, without the Holy Spirit, those methods are simply like a shining car that looks beautiful, but it has no engine. It's like a skeleton that has no life. It's like a, like a um, printing machine that is not plugged in or a refrigerator that's not plugged in when everything spoils. Lord, we don't want things that simply look good on the outside. We don't want simply plans and methods. We sense that if we are honest about it and we look at the challenge square in the face, that we've not done well in reaching the world. If we're honest, there are more people that are being born every day than we are reaching with the three angels' message. If we're honest, the task is enormous. We trust you. We know that you are preparing to pour your Holy Spirit out in ways we can never imagine. We know that the latter rain is going to come and that Jesus is going to triumph, that grace is greater than sin. So today I pray thee that you would gather in the wanderings of our minds, focus us on the promises of God in Christ's name. Amen. What relationship does revival have to a finished work of God, and what relationship does revival have to evangelism? Of the six billion plus people on the face of the planet, only approximately 30% or 2.2 billion are Christians. Do I want to pause to just let that sink in? We're not talking about Seventh-day Adventists, but you have more than four billion people on the face of planet Earth that, do not, that are not Christians. There are 1.5 billion Muslims, 1.1 billion agnostics and atheists, 900 million Hindus, 376 million Buddhists, plus thousands of other religious groups. The task is absolutely overwhelming. With 16.3 million, approaching now 16.5, 16.6 million members, Seventh-day Adventists are approximately 1% of all the Christians and a fraction of a percent of the world's population. Before we become too arrogant about the fact that we are baptizing a million people a year, before we become too arrogant about the number of hospitals and schools and our worldwide work, it is well at time to take pause, to recognize that we are approximately only 1% of all Christians and only a fraction of a percent of the world's population. How will the work of God on earth ever be finished? Should these overwhelming statistics lead us to discouragement or should they lead us to something else? Is it possible? for the gospel in the context of the three angels' messages to circle the globe in a relatively short time. Is that possible? Is it possible for us to see this gospel of the kingdom be preached to all the world in this generation? Think of your local church. Think of the city that your church is placed in. Think of the great capital cities of this world and the challenges we face. How can the gospel in the context of the three angels' messages circle the globe in a short time? What will give us the breakthrough in the proclamation of the gospel that we long for? What is going to happen? First here, this principle is, is critical. The mission is God's. The mission is God's. The mission is not ours. God calls us to participate with him in his mission. 
That to me is incredibly good news. He has not left the mission solely in the hands of the church. Mission is deeply embedded within the heart of God. Luke 19:10. Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Timothy, it's God's will that all men be saved, come to a knowledge of the truth. Peter, he's not willing that any should perish. Mission is God's. He invites us to cooperate with him in finishing his work. We do not finish the work of God on earth. God finishes it. We cooperate with him, and he gives us the privilege of working with him in finishing his work on earth. The challenge that we face is not unlike the challenge of the New Testament church. When Jesus was going to leave his disciples in the first century, the Roman church was the, the church in the Roman world faced enormous challenges. What were some of the challenges that the, Roman, that the New Testament church faced? Greek philosophy. The philosophy of Socrates and Plato had saturated Roman society. There were long debates in the Roman agora over philosophical questions. So the church faced Greek philosophy. Paul was particularly challenged with that in Corinth and in Rome. The church also faced the dominating military might of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had an army second to none. It extended across the Mediterranean basin, and the Roman Empire would have extended from Spain on up into England, throughout continental Europe, down, of course, into the Middle East, Jerusalem, Egypt, and it would, have, uh, it would have been in North Africa as well. So when you look at the Roman Empire, it is dominated with Roman military might. It's also dominated with a pleasure-mad sports entertainment society. It's filled with entertainment, large amphitheaters, concerts, feasts that lasted for months, um, uh, sporting games, chariot races, the great Circumus Maximus in Rome could seat easily 100 to 120,000 people. It was larger than the Colosseum in Rome. If you visited those two places, you note that the Circumus Maximus for horse racing in Rome was easily seating 120,000. The Colosseum probably set 50,000. Um, the Colosseum was so sophisticated that they were able to flood it and have mock naval battles in the Colosseum. They, of course, had scores of gladiator fights there. You can still see some of the cages for the wild animals that were let loose there. The, the uh, Colosseum was not predominantly a place where Christians were persecuted, although some were, more were persecuted in Circumus Maximus. But what do we see? What's the profile? If you were a New Testament Christian, what would you have had to face in New Testament Christianity with the proclamation of the gospel. You'd have to face the false gods of Rome and all Demetri uh, You'd have to face Demeter and Sidon and Apollo and all these false gods. You'd have to face an entertainment-mad society, a sports-mad society, a society that has very few sexual morals with prostitution and homosexuality, the great Roman baths. If you visit, for example, Ephesus, which was a Roman city, and Ephesus was a city of about 150 to 200,000, do you know how you tell the population of these ancient cities? We have a rule of thumb as archaeologists on that, and I don't mean to infer that I am an archaeologist, but I travel with them and work with them a great deal. Um, here's the rule of thumb in archaeology. If you take the size of the amphitheater in the city, and multiply that by 10, you would get the population of the city. So the city, the amphitheater in Ephesus is about 15,000. You multiply that by 10, Ephesus has about 150,000 population. The amphitheater in Laodicea, which has been excavated, could probably seat about 12,000. It's a city of about 120,000. Amphitheater in Rome, the Colosseum, seats about 50,000, 60,000. Rome would have about 600,000 to 800,000, depending on the particular time of it. I was mentioning to you prostitution in the city of Ephesus in Roman culture. Very widely acceptable. 
um, as you are walking on the pavement, and you can see it today, there are engraved in stone advertisements and directions to the prostitutes' locations. So Rome, what kind of place was Rome? A city of entertainment, a city of art, a city of culture, a city of military might, a city of philosophy, a city that had decadent morals. This was ancient Rome, a city that was sports mad. It also had a very high culture. Many of these cities were intellectual in their orientation. For example, if you go to Ephesus, you've got the Celsus Library. The Celsus Library had about um, 15,000 books. It was not the largest library in the Roman Empire. If you go to Pergamum, the, there's an interesting story about Pergamum. There were two libraries that rivaled one another in the ancient world. And I just share this with you to give you an idea of what the ancient, what the church faced. There were two rival libraries in the ancient world. One was Alexandria in Egypt, and the other was Pergamum. Now, the fascinating thing about these libraries was this. The uh, king of Pergamum had a great desire to build the largest library in the ancient world, over 100,000 volumes. And he knew that he needed to recruit the librarian from Alexandria to come to establish his library. But that didn't make the king of Alexandria very happy at all. And so the king of Alexandria um, did everything he could to keep his um, librarian there, even with the threat of losing your head if you leave. And that's pretty high motivation to stay. Um, so the problem was the librarian at Alexandria had developed a method of parchment of taking the, Roman, the Egyptian reeds and making parchment out of them. Unless you have that formula for parchment, you're not going to get very many books. That's where at Pergamum they introduced vellum, which was more of an animal skin for the books. And that came in and Pergamum got a new librarian, not the one from Alexandria. And they had an incredibly large library there. When you think of ancient Rome, I want you to think of entertainment, culture, art, prostitution, feasts that last for months, sports, very strong military might. Rome had a very clearly defined class structure. Not much of a middle class at all, but it had people that were very wealthy and very poor. If you go to some of the apartments in uh, the Roman culture, you can see the remains of those apartments in Ephesus. There will be apartments that are 20,000 square feet, even on the hillside of Ephesus now. They had hot water coming in. They piped it in, and on the tiled floor, they would, they would heat the floor with water going through the floor. So these were no backwater cultures. This is what Christianity had to face. 120 Christians met in the upper room. There are 180 million people in the empire. Best estimates are 180 million people lived in the Roman Empire. 120 Christians met in the upper room. What does this mean? One Christian for every 1.6 million people. There's one Adventist for every 418 people in the world today. One Christian for every 1.6 million people. What happened? What happened? See, we may throw up our hands and say the task is impossible. But I want to take you back to the first century. The task that they faced was greater than the task that we faced. Jesus promised them. He said, but you shall receive power. I love that. Not you might receive power, not maybe you receive power, not I'll go back to heaven and we'll have a committee meeting and think about pouring out power. Somebody said that there is no problem so simple that a committee can't make complicated. <laughs> but you shall receive power. When the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. The Christ that gave them the great commission gave them the great promise. This is incredibly good news. All his biddings are enablings. Anything that Jesus asks us to do, he gives us power to do. When Christ invites you to lead your church into the community in service and witness, he promises the power to accomplish that task. Jesus' promise is all-encompassing. I want you to notice first the all-encompassing nature of the promise. Here it is. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost and when the Holy Spirit was poured out, the 3,000 that were baptized on Pentecost had listened to Jesus' ministry for three and a half years. Jesus did medical missionary work and seed sowing. Peter held the reaping campaign. I don't want you to miss that. 
Jesus did medical missionary work in seed sowing. Some of us labor, and we don't see the results of our labors. Some of you are medical missionaries. You're giving cooking schools. You're giving five-day plan to stop smoking, breathe free. You're doing wellness programs. You're doing creation health. You don't see the full results of that. Keep doing your work for Jesus. Because as the Holy Spirit is poured out in latter rain power, there will be an abundant harvest now that we will know nothing about until we are in the kingdom of God for all eternity. When Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached a reaping sermon, a prophetic sermon, showed the fulfillment of prophecy, and he made an appeal. As the disciples prayed, confessing their sins, seeking God for power to proclaim his grace, the floodgates of heaven opened, and the rain of the Spirit poured down upon them. The Bible says in Acts 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Spirit. They were all filled with the Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Peter said that what happened there was a fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I'll pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. The text goes on to say that you, the Spirit will come on your handmaidens and your servants. I want you to notice that text. It's an easy one to pass over. First, God has no respect to gender. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on your what? Sons and your what? Daughters. Secondly, God has no respect of what? Age. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on your young and your old. Third, God has no respect of social status. Your Holy Spirit's going to be poured out without measure on your manservants and on your maidservants. Isn't that incredibly good news? Amen. Your sons and your daughters, no respect of, of gender with God. Your young and your old, no respect of age with God. Your men servants and your manservants, no respect of social status with God. In the New Testament church, men and women went out filled with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And there was a dramatic change. It was an explosive growth in the book of Acts. Let's look at what happened in a very relatively short time in the book of Acts. Acts 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. About 3,000 souls were added to them. Wouldn't it be quite amazing for those disciples? They wake up in the morning. They're struggling to share the gospel with a Roman culture. They wake up in the morning, and there's about 120. And the church is small. It has struggled. Christ has died. That day, the Holy Spirit is poured out, and by the time they go to bed at night, there's 3,120. I mean, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty incredible. They get up in the morning, they have no idea what's going to happen. They get up in the morning, they have no clue the way God is going to move. They get up in the morning, and they have no sense that 3,000 will be baptized in that day. But yet the Spirit of God is poured out, and something amazing happens. You go to Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Howbeit many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men was about 5,000. If you add the women and children, it's at least 15,000. So within a few short weeks, this struggling group of believers that was struggling to survive is now, 5, 000, now at least 15,000, 15 to 20,000. Acts 6, verse 7. The word of God spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now you have religious leaders, priests, who are accepting the gospel, who are accepting the message of Jesus, the prophetic message. They're sharing it with their congregations, and tens of thousands are becoming Christians. One Roman writer said this, speaking of Christianity in the mid-first century, you are everywhere. You're in our armies, you're in our navies, you're in our senate, you're in our marketplaces. I was interested to go back and look up some of the original sources and see what I could discover. This is Pliny the Younger, who was the governor of Bithynia. And he writes in Epistula 1096. And he is writing back to the emperor because Christians are being persecuted. And he's concerned about the growing number of Christians in his province. And this is what he says. 
for many of every age of every social class, even of both sexes, are being called to trial and will be called, that's Christians. Nor cities alone, but villages in even rural areas have been invaded by the infection of this superstition, Christianity. Now that is an incredibly powerful statement because it's an original first century source that shows us that Christianity impacted the cities, it impacted the villages, it impacted the rural areas, and it impacted them so, so much that Pliny the Younger, the governor, says, we don't know what to do with these Christians. When the Holy Spirit is poured out, God sweeps away every obstacle of social class, of intellectualism, of immersion in entertainment. God speaks to hearts and the Spirit of God is moved. Now, Tertullian was a Roman lawyer. He became a Christian. And he writes back in Apologetics, and he says, nearly all the citizens of all the cities are Christians. He writes to the emperor. This is A.D. 200 that Tertullian writes. It is a second century reference. Now, there are some who feel Tertullian was exaggerating a little bit. He was kind of saying, we've grown so much, it's kind of in your face, you know, as a lawyer. That may be true, but it does not negate the fact that Christianity grew incredibly rapidly in those early years. Will God do it again? I am convinced that as the church is on its knees praying, as we are out sharing the gospel of God's grace, as we are re reaching out in medical missionary work, physically, mentally, spiritually, making an impact on our communities, as we seek God in prayer, as we on our knees repent and confess our sin, as we saturate our minds with God's work, God must do something to me before he can do something through me. God must do something for me before he can do something with me. God must do something in me before he can do something in the community. One of the first things that we do as we move into a city is work with our churches and organize prayer groups. Groups of three, four, five are on their knees praying. They're seeking God. They're petitioning heaven for the outpouring of the Spirit because I know this, prayed-for programs are more effective than non-prayed-for programs. Prayed-for advertising is more effective than non-prayed-for advertising. Prayed-for health programs have a deeper impact than non-prayed-for health programs. Prayed-for evangelistic meetings have a deeper impact than non-prayed-for meetings. As we saturate everything we do in revival, in reformation, in prayer, in lifestyle change, God works powerfully. There is no corresponding revival without a corresponding evangelistic outreach. Revival can only take the church so far, and it's like this. You take one step forward with revival, and unless you have corresponding witness, service, evangelism, and outreach, that revival either will die out or those participating in that revival will tend toward fanaticism, pharisaism, or judgmentalism. That's going to happen. If you get people together that say, oh, we're going to study and pray in our small group, and they have no interest in reaching out, no interest in witness, no interest in salvation of souls, either they'll become self-righteous Pharisees, judgmental of everybody else who doesn't do what they do, or that revival will die out. When you look at the New Testament, it is revival that transforms our life so that our hearts beat heart to heart with Jesus in witness. Acts 12, verse 24, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Notice Ellen White's comments on this in Acts of the Apostles, page 593. As these messengers of the cross went forth to proclaim the gospel, there was such a revelation of the glory of God as had never been before, wit been before witnessed by mortal man. There was an, a revelation of the glory of God in Pentecost that was never witnessed by mortal man. By the cooperation of the divine spirit, 
the disciples, the apostles did a work that shook the world. To every generation was the gospel carried in a single generation. I long for that to happen again. Amen. That there'll be a revelation of the glory of God through his church that has not been witnessed by mortal man. That as human and divine cooperate, that the church today will do a work that will shake the world. And that to every nation, the gospel is carried in a single generation. I believe it can happen again. What about you? Amen. Is God going to do that again? He is. The need was great. The time was right. The disciples met the conditions, and God fulfilled his promise. promise. Amen. Fast forward 2,000 years. The disciples believed that when Christ came the first time, that he was going to establish his kingdom on earth. James and John, right up until right before the crucifixion, said, Lord, when you establish your kingdom, their mom said that, right? Mm -hmm. She wanted her sons to have a good position. <laughs> Mama, go talk to the master. He's going to establish his kingdom. We want to sit in your right hand and your left. The disciples had the prophecies of the Messiah as the suffering servant, but they didn't understand them. Before we criticize them too heavily, though, for every prophecy that Christ would come the first time as suffering servant in the Old Testament, there are eight that he would come as king and triumphant conqueror. And they didn't understand that those prophecies were two separate events. So they thought Jesus was going to come as king. They had studied the prophecies. In fact, when you look at John the Baptist's statement, Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled. You know, they had studied the prophecies of the Old Testament. They believed Christ was going to establish his kingdom. When Christ did not establish his kingdom and was crucified on the cross in 31 AD, when they failed to understand that he was establishing the kingdom of grace and not the kingdom of glory, when Christ died, their hearts were bitterly disappointed. They had studied prophecy. They had failed to understand prophecy. They entered into this disappointment. After the cross, they turn their attention now to the sanctuary and the priestly ministry of Christ. And from the holy place of the sanctuary, God poured out his Holy Spirit in Pentecost. So the New Testament church was raised up out of disappointment. The New Testament church was raised up out of a misunderstanding of Bible prophecy. Fast forward 2,000 years. There is another band of believers. They study the prophecy. The prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, they believe Christ is going to come in 1844. They are bitterly disappointed. The disappointment of Calvary in AD 31 led them to humility, confession, repentance, and deep soul searching. The cross prepared them for Pentecost and the trusting and the promise of the resurrected Lord. Early Advent pioneers, again, studied prophecy. They thought Christ was going to come. He did not come. And that led them to look to the sanctuary. There in that sanctuary, they understood the law of God. They began to keep the Bible Sabbath. They began in that sanctuary to see the pot of manna that was in the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, they discovered the Adventist health message. They looked into the sanctuary and saw Adam's rod that budded, representing church authority. And so they were organized as a church. They believed that just as God poured out his Holy Spirit on these first-day disciples, that God would pour out his Spirit again, that Pentecost would be repeated. God did the impossible in the first century, and he will do the impossible again. Testimonies, volume 7, page 33, a statement that I do not understand, but I believe by faith. All that the apostles did, every church member today is to do. Now, that is an amazing statement. I don't understand it fully. All that the apostles did, miraculous healings, the gospel going to the ends of the earth, all that the apostles did, every church member today is to do. And we are to work with as much more fervor to be accompanied by the Holy Spirit in as much greater measure as the increase of wickedness demands a more decided call to repentance. As the church is on its knees praying, as the church is repenting, as the church casts itself totally upon Christ, the revival fires will burn in the hearts and minds of church members again. 
the Holy Spirit will be poured out in, in miracle-working force. God will move. The world will be transformed and shaken like it was in the first century. Great Controversy, page 611 and 612. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God that marked its opening. Isn't this incredibly good news? Amen. What happened in the book of Acts will happen again. again. There is no question whether it will happen. The only question is, will it happen in this generation? That's the only question. God's promises are true. Yes, His purposes know no haste or delay. The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation than marked its opening. Zechariah 10.1, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the latter rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He'll give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Ask the Lord for rain. In the General Conference office, we have a committee on revival and reformation. We typically spend once a quarter five or six hours together. The first hour, hour and a half, we're on our knees praying. We're saying, God, send us the rain. When we meet now in our major meetings at the General Conference, we spend the first 30 minutes of the meeting often on our knees in every major meeting saying, Lord, send us the rain. We recognize that plans are not going to finish the work. People are not going to finish, that, that methods are not going to finish the work, but people filled with the Holy Spirit will. We are seeking God, asking him for that rain. Now, the Bible talks about the early and the latter rain. You may be surprised. I've heard it some say that the early rain fell in the spring and the latter rain fell in the fall. They did not understand the agricultural cycle of Israel. Typically, what happens in Israel is the early rain falls to germinate the crops that have just been planted in the fall period of time. And then as those crops are developing, the first harvest is in the spring. That's when the first harvest is. So the rain falls, the latter rain, and you begin to get some harvest in the spring, and that latter rain continues to fall to ripen the harvest. The point is this, not so much the time of it, but that the early rain germinates the seed. The latter rain brings that seed to harvest. So God uses that term of rain to describe the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In a historical sense, the early rain fell at Pentecost. In a historical sense, the latter rain will, fell, will fall uh, just before the coming of Jesus. Now, it is also true that early and latter rain can, can be used for the individual believer. The early rain is that rain of the Spirit that convicts us of sin and brings us to conversion. <coughs> the latter rain completes the work of grace in our hearts and soul. God has a divine timetable. Jesus was, was born on time. Jesus was baptized on time. Jesus was crucified on time. You know, that's why Romans 5, verse 8, in the fullness, uh, in due time, God Christ, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, Galatians 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. So God had a divine timetable, and he had a divine timetable for the, in the early reign. He poured out the Holy Spirit to launch the Christian church after the disappointment. We're living in the time of the latter reign, the time when God longs to pour out his Spirit. Look, the dispensation in which we are now living is to be, to those that ask, the dispensation of the Holy Spirit. Ask for his blessing. It is time we were more intense in our devotion. To us has committed the arduous but happy, glorious work of revealing Christ to those who are in darkness. We are called to proclaim the special truths for this time. For all this, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is essential. May I be so bold to say that the proclamation of the special truths for this time will have little effect unless the Holy Spirit empowers our proclamation? We should pray for it. The Lord expects us to ask him. We have not been wholehearted in this work. So we are living at what time? The dispensation that we're now living is to be to those that ask the dispensation of what? The Holy, the Holy Spirit. Spirit. So is this this dispensation of the Holy Spirit? Certainly. And God invites us to seek him, to, pro 
for the power to proclaim the special truths for this time. God's end time church has been given a special message and a special mission. And God promises special power to proclaim the special message and complete his mission. Amen. So we have a special mission, a special message. Seventh-day Adventists are not simply one of multiple denominations that litter the landscape. We thank God for all truth that is preached by any church. We thank God for any denomination that preaches the Bible, that uplifts Jesus. Amen. But we believe that God has called us. Mm -hmm. He's given us a special message for a special time, a message like John the Baptist had to prepare the world for the first coming of Christ. Adventists have been called to restore those truths to prepare a world for the second coming of Jesus. Napoleon's troops were gathered at the base of one of the pyramids, 1799. Napoleon's armies had invaded Egypt, and his troops were standing there awestruck as they looked at those pyramids, pyramids that were almost 4,000 years old, pyramids that had seen the Pharaoh's armies march Pyramids that had seen the Roman armies march. Pyramids that had witnessed 4,000 years of history. If you've ever stood at those pyramids and looked at those blocks of stone, some of them three and a half tons, others of them 15 to 20 tons. If you looked at those stones and you've stood at those pyramids, you have stood amazed. And Napoleon said, gentlemen, the history of the ages is looking down upon us. Mm -hmm. Gentlemen, the history of the ages is looking down upon us. May I say to you today, the history of the ages shines on the Adventist church in this generation. The history of the ages shines upon us, shines upon the youth of this church, calls them to something big and grand for God, calls them to do more than simply go out and make money. It speaks to every pastor in this denomination, not to simply mind the church, intend the store, and maintain the status quo. The history of the ages speaks to us for the finishing of the work, for the proclamation of the gospel, to, in this generation, on our knees, seek God to receive the power of the latter rain. We live at the crossroads of eternity, and all of heaven is looking down upon us. I am not one that takes a political side, but I will tell you this. Whatever political party is in power, it is not wise enough to manage the enormous problems that we face in any country. When you look at the slender thread upon which the economy holds, when you look at Iran developing nuclear weaponry, when you look at North Korea developing nuclear weaponry, when you look at the possibilities of Al-Qaeda or you look at the possibilities of terrorists getting a nuclear bomb, it is frightening, frightening. When you look at the possibility of natural disasters racking America, an economic disaster around the world, when you look at the stable economies of Europe that we thought were so stable, shaking, and the debt in places like Greece, and the debt in places like Spain. This is no play game. Germany trying to support this. this. We're not playing games with this thing. All of this society hangs on an incredibly slender thread. When you look at the Arab Spring and the revolutions in Africa, in, 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 in the Middle East, when you look at some of the instability in Africa today, when you look at the world situation, if there ever is a time that God is calling his church to be serious about spirituality, to be focused on sharing his message, and I'm reminded of that statement of Ellen White, what the church has failed to do in a time of peace and prosperity. It'll have to do at a time of terrible crisis. We live at the crossroads of all eternity. All of heaven is looking down upon us. 
we can trust a God in Ephesians 3.20. Let's read it together. Who can do exceedingly, abundantly, above what we ask or think. I have people say to me all the time, Pastor Finley, evangelism no longer works. Do you know what my comment to that is? It doesn't for you because you don't do it. Dwight Moody was preaching one night and an English teacher was in the audience. And after the sermon, she came up to him and said, Pastor Moody, can I talk to you? You know, Moody didn't have much education, but he rocked two continents for God. Yeah. One thousands to Christ. This English teacher came up to him and said, Pastor Moody, do you know you made 48 grammatical errors in your sermon tonight? Moody looked with a smile and said, Sister, I'm using all the English I know to win souls for Christ. What are you doing with the English you know? <laughs> Another time, a theologian came up to Moody and he said, Moody, I don't like the imperfect methods that you're using. They're archaic. And Moody said, I'd rather use my imperfect methods and win a few souls to Christ than use your perfect ones and win nobody. Some of the people that write books about church growth wouldn't know a soul if they saw one. I am not too interested in theory. I want somebody that's in the arena. I want somebody who gets his hands dirty or her hands dirty, that are out night after night after night preaching the gospel, praying for souls, helping for somebody off alcohol, helping for somebody off tobacco. You know, I'm 67 years old, and the brethren say to me, Mark, we need you to spend more time at the general conference on this committee. I say, look, I'm going to Mobile. I need to get my head straight over here. I'm going to Mobile to preach for seven weeks. Then I will come back and sit on a committee. Pastor, will you chair this committee? Pastor, will you chair that committee? There are lost souls out there. There are lost souls out there. Somebody's got to give a Bible study. Somebody's got to hold a health program. Somebody's got to be in some home leading somebody to Jesus. All of the talk about walking is not as good as a good walk. All this preaching on soul winning and everything you learned here is not going to make a difference unless you go home and do something for Jesus. Yes. I went to preaching. I got to sit out of my stool. <laughs> I got to sit out of my stool. <laughs> all right, we live at the crossroads of history, exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. I thank God. I thank God that we can heal do exceedingly abundantly or we can ask or think. God longs to do amazing things through you. God longs to do amazing things. If you're a lay person, whatever you're doing for Christ, he wants to do something more for you. The people that you are studying the Bible with, the people that are coming to your health programs, the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts and minds. Ask him to give you wisdom to work in their hearts and minds. Ask him to give you wisdom to work with them. The people coming to your health programs... If you've been conducting health programs in your church, say, Jesus, how can I incorporate spiritual principles in the health program and how can I do some follow-up? Lord, work through me. Work through me. I have come to this conclusion. If you do health programs but you never lead people into Bible study, someplace along the spectrum, somebody's got to sit down with that other person and open the Bible and study with them. Give them opportunities. Give them opportunities. Tonight in the meeting, I will say to the audience here, and again, I explained to you, we would never go seven nights in a row. The only reason I'm doing that is the health summit. You know, we typically would go two nights a week for four weeks. Gives us a chance to bond with the people. Typically, we'd serve them a little food after, and I could relate to them, but this is a whole different venue. Typically, I wouldn't be out in Lake Mary. I'd be down in the center of uh, Orlando, but we did this for the, for the health summit. But I still can't let those 150, 200 non-Adventists that come to our meetings go or those people that will walk through the doors. So tonight I'll hold up a Discover Bible lesson and I'll say to them, there are many of you that, we, that you'd like to study the Bible more deeply and we'll enroll over this weekend scores of people in the Bible course so that we can follow them up. Witnessing leads to revival. The more you participate in revival, the more you will be actively involved in witness. 
And the more you witness, the more you'll be actively involved in revival. This is a wrong reference. It should be Acts of the Apostles 105. Strength to resist evil is best gained through aggressive service. I love it. It doesn't say strength to resist evil is best gained through prayer. It doesn't say strength to resist evil is best gained through Bible study. Why do you think this statement is true? Strength to resist evil is best gained through aggressive service. Can you think of anybody that prayed a long time and studied the Bible a long time, but yet they crucified Jesus? Who was that? The Pharisees, right? Didn't the Pharisees pray much of the day? Didn't the Pharisees study the Bible much of the day? But what happened? Prayer and Bible study without a witnessing focus simply leads to pride, arrogance, and, and uh, spiritual Phariseeism. Strength to resist evil is best gained through aggressive service. The more you study the Bible and pray, the more you want to witness. And the more you witness, the more you want to study the Bible and pray. As I'm on my knees praying, God impresses me with this man, this woman, this boy, this girl. As God, as you're on your knees praying, God impresses you with specific people. And as he does, your heart is warmed. The Bible teaches that as we witness, God will pour out his spirit for us, on us. If the purpose of the latter reign, if one of its main purposes is witnessing, why would God pour out the latter reign on a church that was not witnessing? Are you with me? We can talk, oh, Lord, pour out the latter rain. We never knock on a door, never give a Bible study, never get involved with the lost people. If the purpose of the latter rain is witnessing, is God going to pour out the Holy Spirit on a church that has little interest in witnessing? But when the church is together kneeling in prayer bands, when the church is actively involved in witnessing for Christ, look, volume 8, 21, let Christians put away all dissension and give themselves to God for the saving of the lost. Let them ask in faith for the promised blessing and it will come. You may have heard it said that the church must be in unity before God can bring people into the church. May I make this suggestion for you? I was visiting with one of our pastors and he said this to me, I'd like to do evangelism, but I, could, I can't do it because my church is so disunified. I, he said, I'm going to work on the unity of the church, and when my church becomes unified, then we'll be ready to reach out. Mm -hmm. There is a half-truth in that, only a half-truth. <laughs> because I saw him about two or three years later, and I said, how's your witnessing and evangelism going? He said, well, I'm working on the unity of my church. <laughs> I would suppose 10 years later, if he were still there, he'd still be working on the unity of the church. Evangelism not only follows unity, it creates unity. What is it that brought the disciples into unity? Christ said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He gave them the task. They recognized that the task was too great for them. They recognized that the mission was too large for them. And so as the result of that, they prayed that there would be nothing in their life that would hinder the mission. You want your church to be unified? Paint for them a picture that is so grand and so large of mission in your community that elders are on their knees and they recognize that anything petty that divides them is too great. A friend of mine pastoring one of the major cities in the East Coast a number of years ago told me this story. His church was divided. They were Laodicean and complacent, and they were arguing about church officers and who would have the uh, positions in the church. This was fairly an upmarket church with a number of professional people. So he got this idea. They loved parties, particularly New Year's Eve parties. So he said to them, he voted through the church board that they would rent a restaurant on the top floor of a skyscraper overlooking that city for New Year's Eve. They did. And they had some music and they had a meal. And as the old year was fading away and the new year was coming in, he gave a signal which was prearranged to the hotel staff. They turned off every light in that room as it struck midnight. 
and it was dark. He walked over and they opened the curtains and they looked down in that city, the twinkling lights. It was a city of three million people. And he stood there and he said, this is our city. This is our city. I want you to look at it. Tonight they're partying. Tonight they're getting drunk. There are millions in this city that are lost. What are we going to do this coming year to reach them? He left his church sitting there in the silence. They then knelt and began to pray that God would give them a strategy to reach that city. A church that was disunified, unified over mission. There is nothing like mission to bring people together. There's nothing like mission when there's something bigger than you. When there are lost people, it doesn't make much difference when the, whether the carpet is green or red. It is not really worth arguing over. It's not much difference who is the head deacon and who is the head, who, if, whether I'm an elder or the head elder. When I see lost people and the church is praying for lost people, and the church focuses on lost people. It brings together unity. Let Christians put away all dissension, give themselves for the saving of the lost. Let them ask for the promised blessing, and it will come. Christ will have a final generation of committed men and women who he uses to complete his mission on earth. This indeed is a promise of God. Christ's promise is all-encompassing, it's all-empowering, and it'll have all-empowering results. Revelation 18.1 is still true. The earth is going to be lightened with the glory of God. What is God's glory? It's character. You see, this message is not going to flicker like some candle and be blown out in the breeze. The earth is going to be lightened with the glory of God. Look, in the visions of the night representations passed before me, Ellen White says, of a great reformatory movement among God's people. Will there be revival and reformation in the church? Sure there will be. Many were praising God. The sick were healed. Other miracles were wrought. A spirit of intercession, what's that, a spirit of intercession, was seen, even as was manifest before the great day of Pentecost. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families. Do you think she just saw shadows, or do you think she saw real people in her vision? What do you think? Real people in the last generation. She saw faces. Now, my next question is this. Did she see your face? Did she see your face? If Ellen White saw hundreds and thousands in the last generation visiting families, would God give her a vision of something that wasn't true? Did she see your face? Did she see you knocking on a door? Did she see you sitting in a room holding a Bible study? Did she see you praying with some soul? I hope she did. Hundreds and thousands were seen visiting families, opening before them the Word of God. Hearts were convinced by the power of the Holy Spirit. A genuine conversion was manifest on every side. Doors were thrown open to the proclamation of the truth. Why? You correlate that with the statement where Ellen White says, nothing will open doors for the truth like what? Medical missionary work. So as we go out and minister unselfishly now, and their doors seem to be closed, they will be thrown open. Why? because of the unselfish ministry of Christ we have done in those communities. The world seemed to be lightened with the heavenly influence. Great blessings were received by the true and humble people of God. I heard voices of thanksgiving and praise, and there seemed to be a reformation such as we've not witnessed since 1844. Encouraging. Tens of thousands will come to Christ. Evil will not have the last word. God will. Amen. Disease will not have the last word. God, God will. Amen. Poverty will not have the last word. God, God will. Sickness will not have the last word, God will. Suffering will not have the last word, God will. That's incredibly good news. Man will not have the last word, God will. Jesus gives his promise that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. The earth is going to be lightened with the glory of God, and tens of thousands are going to be impressed and become part of God's last day message. Would you like today in class to pray for that outpouring of the Holy Spirit? I wonder if we could do this. Could we close the door so we won't be distracted? And what I would like to do is, where possible, if we could kneel. Now, some cannot kneel. And this is what I'd like to do. 
rather than breaking up in a small group, and you'll forgive me because I cannot kneel with my knee right now, but I can kneel in my heart. And if some of you have a physical ailment that you cannot kneel, the Lord understands that, but if we could. Could you pray a one-sentence prayer? Many people can pray that way, one or two sentences. And just open your heart to God, ask Him to touch you with His Spirit, ask, you to give, ask Him to give you a broader vision, ask Him to help you to apply the things that you have learned here when you go home, Ask him to help you to go home as a different person than when you came. So let's kneel if we can. If we can, it's okay. Don't worry about it. And I'm going to ask Chris if you'll just offer a prayer to start. And then anybody that wants to pray, just a sentence or two, please. Not long prayers. Don't say amen at the end of your prayer. But just open your heart to God, a very personal prayer. It might be a prayer of confession sentence, two sentences. It might be a prayer of asking him for the Holy Spirit. It might be a prayer telling God, God, I want to go home more committed and I want to imply what I've learned. Let's pray together these sentence or two prayers and many can pray. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org